Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. And welcome to episode 48 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And it's pretty obvious which state we are going to talk about this week. Is it though? Aloha. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do that little dance again. No, thank you. (laughs) Okay. Yes, we're going to talk about Hawaii, the beautiful paradise. I've got the true crime. Beth, you have the paranormal, the booze and the booze. She hates it. <laughs> uh, before I begin with the cocktail, if you hear any loud noises or talking in the background. It's not ghosts. <laughs> again, it's not ghosts, but a little personal true crime story. We found mold in our home <laughs> and we have a lot of workers working currently at patching holes and putting up wood, putting up walls and putting up ceilings and it's... <laughs> glorious <laughs> let me tell you oh well it's clean it's taken care of and it's just the best way to end 2020 <laughs> but they have got probably one of the nicest young men we have the best contractor in the world this guy was like hey you guys need your shower so i'll i'm just gonna give up my whole weekend and mm-hmm. come and do it for you yep i mean he's we're am- blessed He's amazing. He's done so, so many things around this house. This this guy is amazing. Yes, he is. Um, Shout out to you, Gordon. Gordon, yeah. Okay, so let's not talk about mold anymore. Let's talk about what we drinking. Let's talk about a Mai Tai. Mai Tai. (laughs) Was that a joke? Your Tai. (laughs) We don't have any ties. (laughs) I'm your mother. (laughs) I meant like bow ties. Oh my gosh. Never mind. It's 1030. That was was just bad. My tie. Your tie. We aren't wearing any ties. Well, this will not help because this has a ton of alcohol in it. And again, I put my own little twist on it because I made the cocktail, tried it and went, yikes, that needs something sweet in it. So I hope you like it. Let's have a drink and then I'll tell you what's in it. Okay. Now this drink, I mean, I haven't drank it yet, but my ties when we went to Hawaii last year, this year, oh my gosh, it was still the beginning of this year. It's the longest year ever. Longest year ever. Yeah. Shout out to you, Brendan Ward. But anyway, when we had, I mean, it's everywhere. My ties are everywhere. Yes, exactly. And I actually reached out to Brenda and I was like, Brenda, you live in Hawaii. What is the cocktail? And she gave me a few and this was the top of the list. Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. And that's what I read. It is never ordered it. A Hawaiian (laughs) cocktail. Guys, there's a lot of booze in this drink. Yeah. Okay. A lot of rum. A lot of rum. All right. Why is all the rum gone? Because Hawaii drank it all in their Mai Tais. (laughs) Cheers, Mom. 
Cheers. Do you guys hear that, by the way? Does it remind you of Charlie Brown at all? (laughs) (laughs) The workers talking upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the drink. Okay. It's very sweet. Well, okay. So, sorry, but... So, for the original recipe, it calls for one and a half ounces of light rum, one and a half ounces of gold rum, two ounces of triple sec, one ounce of lime juice, and a half ounce of amaretto. Put that all in a shaker with ice, shake it all up, pour it in a glass over ice, and then top it off with an ounce of dark rum. Holy smokes. So, you have light rum, dark rum, and gold rum. I've never heard of gold rum. Well, it's upstairs. <laughs> I have some. I have some gold I'm drinking rum. drinking some right now. <laughs> so when I tasted it, I went, yikes, that is just like a straight shot. This is a very tall glass. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to get through the evening. So I added pineapple juice. Oh, okay. And a little simple syrup. That's what's making it super Yeah, sweet. I didn't add very much simple syrup. It doesn't but take very much. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to drink it. <laughs> Believe me, you would not wanted to have tried it without the sweetness added to it. No, but I'll tell you what, I couldn't drink more than one. Well, we don't want you to. That would be <laughs> dangerous. It would be terrible. What do you got for us for a true crime story, mama? Well, I actually, there was a few that I was interested in, in looking into. And I found this one. And because... Christmas is actually this week. I chose the case of Dana Ireland, and it happened Christmas Eve. Well, how fitting. On December 24th, 1991, on the east side of the Big Island, Hawaii, Anne Cheryl was driving down Kapaho Kai Drive. Now, I'm going to tell listeners right now, I'm pretty sure I said that one right, but as beautiful as the Hawaiian language is, I know I'm going to slaughter it. Oh, just so, wait for the paranormal story, please, guys. Please cut me some slack here. <laughs> Sorry. Kapoho Kai Drive, when she spotted a white sneaker. That in itself was not unusual. Beachgoers were known to forget to close their tailgates or leave things on top of their cars and drive away. Sure. But this sneaker looked new. And Anne thought, hmm, that might just be my size. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so she stopped, hoping that the one other- sneaker, though? She stopped hoping that the other shoe had also fallen off the roof. Oh, okay. Or the tailgate or whatever. But that one shoe was not the only thing she found. She saw something shiny and realized it was a watch with a snapped clasp. Then she saw a clump of blonde hair and blood. Oh. Further off the street, she saw a bicycle or what used to be a bicycle. It was so badly damaged, it was hard to distinguish it as such. Um, uh, It almost looked like just a piece of metal Metal. that somebody had just tossed tangled up so looking at that cheryl's like my god somebody was hurt so she starts looking for a body or somebody that needs help gosh yeah the person riding the bike could not have gotten far because this bike Mm -mm. was so badly damaged as she was searching rich trendle drove up and joined cheryl in the search but found nothing to add to the troubling scene cheryl and rich noticed the tracks not hard to spot in the red cinders. And let me explain this. The road used to be called Red Road because it wasn't paved. There were red cinders on the road. What are cinders? Mm, just pieces of wood. 
redwood like mulch almost like mulch okay that's what the road was made of it's now paved okay but that's what it was made of okay before so they saw that the cinders had been scattered out like could have been caused by a car that accelerated okay and spewed out them in the back it looked like the driver of whatever car had intentionally sped up crossed the road and hit whoever was with the bike so purposefully hit the bicyclist. that's kind of what they assumed of course these are just you know like amateurs you and me, yeah you know on the road cheryl placed a call to 911 at 525 she knew that whoever owned that bike was in trouble at 526 a minute later the police received a call from john ireland reporting that his daughter dana was missing and that his other daughter, Sandra, had driven by an accident scene and had seen a crushed bicycle that looked just like the one she owned and that Dana had borrowed that afternoon. Oh, gosh. At 5.36, the first police officer arrived at the scene and is joined at 5.40 by two more officers. I'm going to tell you a timeline just because it kind of has a bearing on everything. So, this is now crime scene one. Meanwhile, five miles away in rural Wawa, Ida Smith was in her kitchen getting ready to prepare dinner when she heard a faint cry for help. She first thought it was the neighbor kids playing, but after a few minutes, she once again hears, help me, help me. Oh my gosh. It sounded like a woman's voice. Ida began to search for the source of the cries for help. It took a while because they were She lived in a wooden house that was by the sea, but there was um, a lot of vegetation below her. Okay. And kind of trails. And so she was just following the sound. Whenever she could hear it, it wasn't constant. She would try to follow it. Oh, gosh. It took a while, but then she found off a remote fishing trail a young woman. The woman was incoherent and didn't seem to even know her own name. She was bloody and had obviously been raped. She had scratch marks and a bite on her right breast. Oh my gosh. She was bleeding profusely from a gaping wound to her head. The poor woman needed help and fast, but there was no electricity or phones in this remote area. And by, and by this time, the woman had a grip on Ida's hand and pleaded not to be left alone. Oh my gosh. So Ida knelt by the woman and prayed with her. This seemed to calm the woman down enough to let Ida rush to her house to grab a quilt to cover the woman. I I am guessing because Ida did not place a phone call, I'm guessing Ida did not have a telephone. I think she would have called. So I don't think she had a telephone. Then she once again sat with a young injured woman. The only way to get help was to flag down a car that happened down this lonely stretch of road. Oh my gosh. Hazel Franklin then Hazel Allen, was the first to be stopped by Ida. Hazel drove off and placed a call at 547, more than an hour after Dana had been attacked. Ida stopped a second car, and four people stayed to help. Officer Pinnell, who was at the crime scene one, arrived at what is now crime scene two. This was more than an hour after Ida had found the woman. Okay. Pinnell went down the trail observed the scene, and ran back to his squad car. Sarge, he said, you've got to do something. You've got to send help. She's really hurt bad. An ambulance arrived at the scene at 6.50. What? More than an 
hour after Hazel had placed the call. So now this woman's been sitting there for over two hours. It left for Hilo Hospital 23 minutes later. The next morning, Ida heard on the news that the young woman had died. So I'm going to give you a timeline, which is going to blow your mind. 547, Hazel called the police. She told the dispatcher that police should, quote, make a right on Government Beach Road, then keep going less than two miles. Okay. At 608, dispatcher Don Briskia, who had not received the initial call from Hazel, it had been passed on to him, called, this is like your telephone thing from last week, called for an ambulance. But in his direction, she said the woman could be found right after you get on government road. Mm -hmm. So she had said, make a right on government road, then keep going less than two miles. His interpretation was right after you get on government beach road, you'll see the woman. 6.30, the ambulance arrives at Government Beach Road. The crew was told, I mean, they're looking around. Hey, there's nothing here. The crew was told by a passing motorist that the woman was two miles away, but they waited. Why? Why? This is a really remote area and part of the road. So part of the road is paved and the other part is dirt that has not been, has been driven on by like people going fishing and stuff. Okay. Huge potholes. Everyone knew about this road. It just was really dangerous to ride on because only a like four-wheeler would go down it. Okay. Huge, huge potholes. Okay. So the ambulance was like hesitating to go down this road. Well, what are they going to accomplish just sitting and waiting though? And I can't believe they didn't walk down there or something. Just I mean, something. drive partway to it. I, I don't know. See how far you can go. 636, so six minutes later, fire rescue shows up, but they plain flat refuse to go down the road. What? At 642, so this is 16 minutes later, the ambulance slowly makes its way to the scene. I mean, okay, I'm just imagining like these big goalies in this road, like... Uh, I'm sure... What would stop I'm sure it was bad. I'm sure it was bad, but come on. You know, or, or, or drive on the paved road and, and go at least see the scene and see what you're dealing with or something. I So at 6.50, the ambulance arrives at the scene. At 7.13, the ambulance arrives at the hospital. So that's, that is a gap. Uh, hmm. An un, I don't know. I, th- I think everything just happened, you know, in the terrible order. But anyway... Because of the description John Ireland had given to the police when he called earlier to report his daughter missing, police were sure the injured woman was their daughter, Dana. John and Louise Ireland, their older daughter, Sandra, and her boyfriend, Jim Ingram, rushed to the hospital. On Christmas Day at 1225, Dana Ireland, only 23 years old, was pronounced dead due to her head wound and crushed pelvis, among other injuries. She had lost too much blood. Oh, my gosh, my heart. That's so sad. I mean, had the stars aligned correctly? (laughs) First of all, this would never happen. But, I mean, you know, the accident would never have happened. But she had lost too much blood. She was, I mean. They couldn't help. I mean, they didn't get to her in time. Yeah, there's there's something to help that. And that's getting there on time. Um, Also, I read that um, when the policemen first got there, she said, um, do you have a first aid? I think it was a nurse who said, do you have a first aid kit or something in your the trunk of your car? And he said, no, we don't carry those. It was after what? it was after this. Then it was required in, then? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was required for police to carry first wow, aid. I can't imagine that. What year was this? 91. It wasn't until 91 that a police officer was required to carry a first aid kit? That's a little bizarre to me. My stepdad required me to have a first aid kit in the back of my car <laughs> when I was 16 years old. He's very conscientious about that stuff. So, I mean, he, he wants you to... He needs to go down and talk to the police officers. <laughs> so who was Dana Ireland? She was a beautiful young woman who grew up in Springfield, Virginia. Oh, we were there last week. Mm -hmm. She loved life. She really did. And outdoors. She was athletic, very kind, shy, and loyal. Her father said that um, when describing her loyalty, um, I guess she played soccer. Mm -hmm. And she was being recruited for soccer and they wanted her good for her and she said no unless you also have tryouts for my teammates wow as she was just a very kind kind soul she was a tomboy but very neat and particular about her clothes (laughs) she didn't watch a lot of tv except for programs about hawaii surfing and other sports National Geographic magazine was what she read. Oh. Dana graduated from college in 1991 with a degree in physical education with a sports medicine emphasis. And in October of that year, she traveled to Hawaii to stay with her sister, Sandra, who now lived there. And this was something that she dreamed. Well, yeah. Because they had gone there for Christmas mm-hmm. year after year after her sister moved there. And and so she fell in love with Hawaii. Aww. So she said, when I graduate, that's where I want to go. It's got everything. I, You know, it's got surfing. Yeah. It's got hiking. It's so got it's surfing. She likes to be outside. She's active. It's got it's awesome. Everything. Not to make comparisons, but Dana, when you were telling your story. Um, about Gina. About Gina. Dana seems a lot like Gina. Just a go-getter. And, and, and just... She knew what she wanted. Yeah. And she was just kind and innocent. Mm-hmm. Well, in December, John and Louise joined their daughters for Christmas in Hawaii as they had done in the past, renting a house as they always did. But this Christmas would be very different from past holidays. And every Christmas after that, I can't even imagine... The afternoon of December 24th, 1991, Dana borrowed Sandra's bicycle to ride the seven miles to her new boyfriend's house, Mark Evans. She arrived there at 3.30 and left around 4. So basically, she just went there to invite him to Christmas dinner. Then she turned around at 4 to ride the seven miles back to Sandra's house. Mark had offered her a ride, but remember... Dana was very athletic, and she loved the outdoors. It was a beautiful day, and she wanted to bike back. So here's another timeline. At 4.10, Dana left Mark Evans' house. At 4.25-ish, Dana rode past Shacks, which is a surfing spot. Witnesses told detectives that three guys, Frank Pauline, Albert Ian Schweitzer, and Sean Schweitzer, their brothers, were also seen at Shacks. One of them said hi to Dana, and she smiled and waved, but kept pedaling. Ten to fifteen minutes after Dana passed Shacks, the three men got into a purple Volkswagen bug and headed in the same direction as Dana had. 4.40-ish, Dana was run over and kidnapped. Less than half a mile from her parents' rented house. Oh, jeez. Dana was raped, possibly in the car en route to Wawa. At 4.45, Ida Smith heard the cry for help. 
Oh my gosh. So that's all in a span of less than 45 minutes. It, it's anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes that this all happened. Wow. My God, in an instant. Detectives had little to go on. The only real evidence was a bloody blue t-shirt found at crime scene two. They also had the witness accounts of the three men in the purple beetle. A tip called in prompted police to look at someone who had been on their radar, Frank Pauline. Remember I mentioned his Mm -hmm. name. In 1994, he was in jail for rape and robbery, but he was known to police before then, way before then. His crime record started when he was convicted of burglary at the age of 10. By the way, you said that word very well. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Just flew right over there, didn't I? Yep, you did. I had to call it out. When questioned, Pauline confessed that he attacked Dana, but he wasn't alone. He was with Albert, who they called Ian, who I'll call Ian from now on, Schweitzer. Okay. So one of the brothers. One of the brothers, 20 at the time, and Sean Schweitzer, 16 at the time. 16? In his confession, he said that the Schweitzer brothers picked him up at his house in a purple Volkswagen. Ian was driving. They stopped to smoke cocaine, which they did a lot, and drank beer, and a little later saw a woman standing on the side of the road. Ian accelerated, hit the woman. Ian and his brother got out and put her in the trunk. Jeez. God bless America. I'm sure you know this, but the Volkswagen Beetles, their trunk is in the the front. front. Mm -hmm. Okay. I watched her be the love bug. And it's very small. Very small. They drove to a place with a lot of junk cars. Ian and Sean raped her and Pauline hit her on the head with a tire iron. Then they dumped her in some bushes on the side of the road in Wawa. Now this is Pauline's confession statement. Detectives had little else to go on. They did investigate the Schweitzer brothers and found a Volkswagen, but it had been painted yellow. They found blonde hair and blood in the trunk, and they found a car bumper inside the Volkswagen that had been damaged consistent with having struck a bicycle. Hmm. But there was also evidence that didn't support the guilt of the three suspects. The bite marks on Dana's breast didn't match the three. What? So they took um, a cast of their sure their, their bite marks, their bite marks, yeah, their teeth and everything, and sent it to a lab that okay. does specializes in bite marks, and it didn't match up to any of the three. Whoa! Nor did the DNA in the semen found in Dana and on the medical sheet she had lain on. So the sperm DNA did not match the three guys. Any of the three guys. Okay. The DNA was run through CODIS, but there has never been a match. What? Then Pauline changed up his stories, going so far as to say the brothers put Dana in the trunk of the car, carried her to another place, and at least one of the brothers raped her. One other brother hit her with a tire iron. Pauline said he was so sickened by the whole thing that he threw up. When he attempted well, that's to That's a totally different story. When he attempted to leave, he was threatened by one of the brothers. Then eventually he recanted his confession altogether, saying he was not involved at all. Well, the DNA doesn't say that he was, so... So now we're all over. Oh my gosh! He was not believed. And in 1999, Pauline went to trial for Dana's rape and murder. The jury found him guilty. He was sentenced... On what, though? What evidence? 
Just his, his confessions? His confession and witness reports. So he was sentenced to 180 years in prison. When, in oh, 2004, geez. in the A&E American Justice, Murder in Paradise, which is season 13, episode 17, the jury forewoman, Lisa Kaneshiro, was interviewed and questioned about the guilty verdict. Even with the DNA evidence contrary, she said that testimonies of the people on stand overpowered any indecision we might have had about DNA. Wow, this is just crazy to me. Ian Schweitzer went on trial in February 2000. He was also found guilty and sentenced to 130 years. Oh my gosh, this is just crazy to me. He is now serving his sentence in an Arizona prison. Sean Schweitzer, who was 16, mm-hmm. was able to cut a deal because of his youth and semi-clean criminal record. He got one year behind bars and five years probation. Holy cow, this is a lot different than 130 years. He had already spent one year in jail waiting for the trial. Mm-hmm. So basically, after the trial was over, he walked out. Oh my goodness. Pauline was moved to the Southern New Mexico Correctional Facility to serve his time. On April 27, 2015, Pauline was killed by another inmate, Daniel Hood, who was already serving two life terms. He doesn't care. Hood confessed to hitting Pauline in the head with a rock. Oh. According to the New Mexico Department of Public Safety news release, Hood admitted killing Pauline because he was a snitch and he walked around like he owned the place. (laughs) Interestingly, I'm going to throw this in. Pauline was killed the day after the Hawaii Tribune Herald reported that the Hawaii Innocence Project, as well as Judges for Justice, had started a campaign to overturn the three convictions in the Ireland case. No way. Because of the DNA evidence. One such evidence I'll mention here. Remember the blue blood-soaked t-shirt? Yes. Okay. Now, witnesses had said that that is Pauline's shirt. Yes, Pauline's shirt. And that was a huge thing for the prosecution. And How they said prove that that's his shirt though. They said he he wore it a lot. It, it had like a band or something. Okay. You know, uh, it was a shirt with a motif or whatever in the front of it that he wore a lot. Okay. And it was blue with which the color matched and everything. But in December 2007, touch DNA, which was kind of a mm-hmm. new concept, came back no match to Pauline. Hmm. In fact, it concluded that the touch DNA found on the shirt matched the DNA found in the sperm. Okay, so that's the guy. What do you mean? So that's the bad guy. We don't know who the exactly, I, but 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 those there, two it's match, not him. But it doesn't match the three, right? So this was a huge piece of evidence that the jury. You know, the prosecution kept pushing. Yeah, because I mean, nothing the, matches without anybody. The, without the touch DNA, because that was not introduced at trial because sure. it hadn't been done yet. But yeah. So the blue, just the the evidence of the blue T-shirt at scene two. Thrown out. And it yeah. was Pauline's. Yeah. By golly, he was there. I don't care about DNA. That's his shirt. It's bloody. And, you know, he's a bad guy. And it, he had to have done it. I watched retired judge Michael Heavy, co-founder of Judges for Justice, which was started in 2013, in two YouTube videos concerning this case. 
One, the murder of Dana Ireland and the pathology of wrongful convictions. And two, who killed Dana Ireland, part one of Justice for Dana. In these videos, Judge Heavy points out the discrepancies in the case and how it was handled. He talks about the red flags, mm -hmm. such as the bite marks do not match the three suspects, <sighs> so nor does the sperm DNA. The blue shirt, which was critical to the prosecution, had touched DNA that was no match to Pauline. There were tire tread marks at both crime scenes with similar treads about eight inches wide. Crime scene two was very remote, so chances are very good it was the same car. Okay. The bug, the VW bug, had tire treads five inches wide. Doesn't match. Oh my gosh. In his confession, Pauline didn't know what Dana looked like. What? Only that she was white. He didn't know her hair color or what she was wearing. Oh my gosh. I, why did the idiot even make a confession? It was, there were several reasons. One, he wanted the attention. Mm. Two, his brother, it was, uh, it was like he did a deal thing. I'll tell you, but my brother is in prison for, I can't remember what it was for, a drug charge or something. And he wanted his brother's prison sentence to be lessened. It was almost like a deal thing. Okay. There were three witnesses that were not called to trial. Oh, it is it is like Gina Renee Hall. I know. There's a lot of similarities. They told police that they saw a large shirtless man load what looked like a body into the back of his 1970s pickup truck at around 5 p.m. at scene one. Interesting point here that Judge Heavy talks about. An FBI profile of the killer says disorganized sexual homicide and the killer worked alone. Now, some people also, a witness also said that this large man had a, a boy with him. What? So, but nothing is really talked okay. about about the boy. So the retired judge also believes that inflammatory media convicted the defendants long before the trials even started. Oh, it's tricky. It's also possible, says Heavy, that the unknown fourth person was involved in the Ireland killings. Okay. So maybe there was somebody else with them. But one nobody of the three would have said has that. never said. One, one of, of the three, three has never said, said anything about that. Especially if they're being put away for 130 years. They would be like, why wouldn't they say, you know, that doesn't make any sense. So many unknowns. Truly. So many twists and turns in this case. If just if the three defendants are found to be not guilty of this horrible crime, I really hope to God that the killer is found. My heart aches for Dana's friends and family. She was a beautiful soul that left this earth way too soon. Mm. Valerie Oliver Dexter, who knew Dana for most of her life, and her husband Richard said that Dana's death made them reevaluate their lives. One thing they did was they just took off. They traveled around the world for almost three years. How wonderful. That's something Dana always wanted to do. Remember the National Geographic? Yeah. That was her way of finding out about the world. Mm. And she wanted to see it. This is a quote from Valerie. And it's going to make me cry because it does right now. <sighs> this is a quote from Valerie that I found quite true and a bit gut-wrenching. Okay. Try to do this. When I'm down... Or it's, oh, so hard to get up to get to work. I think live your life like every day is your last because you never know. No. 
You never know. Oh, um, yeah. I, I do want to add this side note. I felt conflicted about this. I thought it was an interesting case, and that's why I took it. But I feel conflicted because we always support the victim. You know, sure. we, we, we advocate, for, advocate the for the victim. Mm-hmm. And then I felt torn because in this case, the DNA, I don't know if the three men are guilty or not. Police and investigators still swear that they are and that okay. they got the right guys. And, you know, um, but just a little... A little side note, and this is according to the National Registry of Exonerations as of 2019. Since 1989, there have been 2,449 exonerations in the United States. 117 of those were men on death row. So that is crazy to me. I thought I, I was surprised at the number. So it does happen. I mean, but I, I don't know. This case just. No. It, it, and it, and it, it, it had a lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and so it took, you know, it was like, okay, I, I've got to cut this off somewhere. So <laughs> I'm not going to add this. and I'm not going to add that. But um, yeah, if you're interested, the Dana Ireland case is very, very interesting. Super interesting. I can't believe that they got such convictions with no matching teeth marks, no matching DNA. Oh, that's just crazy to me. I don't know. One of the witnesses, uh, the second person, the one that called 911 at crime scene two, the woman, mm-hmm. she wasn't contacted at all until, the trial? He, until like a year old later. She, was an after- she wasn't even interviewed. for. She was an afterthought. It was like, oh, she fell through the cracks. Oh, my. There was just so much of that that happened. It was, I I love police, you know that, but it was just really shoddy police work. And then the timeline Shoot. was so, you know, messed up. I don't know. I mean, they couldn't help that they didn't have any phone service or electricity out there. So that was a, you know, that didn't help. There were just so many different things that you just, you know, wow, it's just awful. I had never heard that case. That's really intriguing. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have a drink. You lighten my thought because that sentence was really hard for me to get through. Okay. Well, leave it to me to lighten things up. Keep in mind that most of my cocktail is gone and that thing and that sucker is strong. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> These Tahiti, Tahiti. beaties, Mai Tais, what are they called? <laughs> Tahiti TDs. <laughs> No, it's my tie, not your tie. See, that's how you remember. Okay, well, this my tie sneaks up on you. Yeah, I bet it does because it it's rum, so it's easy to drink. And Three kinds of rum, and then all of a sudden, boom! That that's about how I feel right now. So, uh, listeners, following along with my story, uh, good luck. Uh, good luck. <laughs> On the Pacific Ocean coastline, in the heart of Waikiki, set on 22 acres of white sand beach, sits a bit of paradise, five swimming pools, a world-class full-service Mandara spa. No idea what that is, but that's what they called it. Live shows, diverse, vibrant dining opportunities and luxurious amenities, and adventurous activities as well as relaxing ones. This place sounds like paradise. Uh 
Not a place with hauntings. No. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just reading my notes. The stories I found show that the Hilton Hawaiian Village Waikiki Beach Resort in Honolulu is pretty dang haunted. Ooh, okay. Guests and locals alike have a few stories of this haunted beach resort. I mean, it sounds like the perfect place for me to be a ghost. I gotta, I gotta remember that. <laughs> when I'm haunting someone, I'm gonna do it at a resort. I mean, that sounds perfect. But it may not be a ghost that haunts this paradise. Mm-hmm. It may be, and goodness gracious, please don't hate me if I mispronounce these words in this story, it may be Madame Pele, the goddess of volcanoes and fire. Oh. Pele, it's P-E-L-E. I think you're good. Okay. She is a well-known Hawaiian mythological deity. Deity? Deity or deity? I think it's deity. D or day. (laughs) It's (laughs) deity she is known for her power passion jealousy and impulsive unpredictability hmm. sounds, sounds like, like me on a mic tie <laughs> now there are several legends of her out there according to the legend that i saw most pele had many siblings deities of various types of wind, rain, fire, cloud forms, ocean wave forms, but her domain is volcanoes. Right. Specifically, Halamaumau. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Halamaumau, the summit of Kilauea. Kilauea. Yeah. Kila. Kila. Doing this sober was hard. <laughs> Drunk you. is much harder. I think you said it right the first time. You did really well. Okay, I am really sorry. I'm really trying. One of the Earth's most active volcanoes. Now, the story goes that Pile took a canoe from the island of Tahiti. I can pronounce that one. And was headed to Hawaii. On her journey, she was creating her fire. Volcanoes on different islands on her way. So she's just making volcanoes in the ocean. <laughs> and her sister's like, hell no. And like chasing her down. This is my ocean. She's like, stop. You got to stop this. Eventually she catches her and the two goddesses get into this big fight. And Pele dies. Her body destroyed, but her spirit left in Hele Maumau. That volcano I right. said earlier. Right. That I tried to say earlier. Apparently... Pele can change form. and She has that too? Yeah. <laughs> and she's appeared as a white dog, an old woman, or a beautiful young woman. And she is the one that people believe they see walking the beach of the Hilton Hawaiian Village. People have reported seeing a young, attractive woman in a red dress walking down the beach. And... A red dress? Exactly. Hey, at least she's in a red dress. <laughs> at least you changed things up. <laughs> so I read in multiple resources that a young woman in a red dress has been seen wandering the halls as well. And this even dates back to the 50s, apparently. Oh, my goodness. When a bellhop was helping a woman to her room, he unlocked and opened her door, turned to let her in, and she vanished. 
Now, if she is not Pele and she's a ghost, right? then the ghost is from a woman that was murdered in the hotel. Well, I couldn't have another Boy Scout Lane story on my hands. I needed to make sure there really was a murder in this hotel. <laughs> okay. So I did some digging. And there, there was. was. A woman was murdered there. But in 2017... So that doesn't date back to so the that 50s. that doesn't make sense as to why the ghost was seen there in the 50s. So I kept looking. Mom, I seriously found so many murders and deaths in this hotel. Really? Yes. Like a woman vacationing there tried to throw her sons from the seventh floor balcony. What? She failed. So she decided to strap her youngest four-year-old son to her and jump. What? Oh, no. That was in 1988. I found a couple other stories, but I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Paranormal part of the episode. It's supposed to be light, Beth. And we don't want to be sued for talking about all these deaths in this hotel. Slow your roll. Get back to the happy stuff. <laughs> so the happy stuff. So just from the stories that I just shared. That it's very possible it is haunted. I think the place is haunted. Like, okay. that's pretty crazy. But what I found also had me thinking, what is protocol for hotels when someone dies in their rooms? Like, I mean, here are the black holes I went down. <laughs> like, what do you mean protocols? Like, do they have to... So if somebody dies in a hotel room, what's the protocol? Like, what do you do? Clean everything up? Right. And so I researched this. You have this. to admit that somebody died in that room. Right. And they won't. That's like a thing. They like, like if a celebrity died in that hotel room, they don't want people to know that anybody died in that hotel room. That was social media. That's impossible. But yeah. So I actually started going down that wormhole. <laughs> I didn't research too much because, again, I got back on track. But amazing. <laughs> I did read that obviously the room is sealed off. When somebody dies in there, the room is sealed off and the hotel cannot use the room until authorities release it back to them. Yeah. One article I found was a hotel manager actually responding to the question on this like kind of like a Reddit forum. Like yeah. So on this forum, this hotel manager answers and says that it basically depends on how the person died yeah, yeah, and how yeah. quickly it was caught. So if the person was there for like a day or less or less than and say it was just an overdose and they're on the bed, well, then they would just replace like the mattress and the sheets and stuff. But another article I read said that hotels usually would throw away anything that has a permeable surface. So like sheets, blankets, mattresses, even wooden tables and lampshades. Oh, really? Most electronics are also thrown away in case blood splatter has gotten into them. Mm. Can you imagine firing up the game system in the room and the smell that may possibly oh, have? But my big question was like, what about the toilets and the bathtubs? <laughs> I know they are like disinfected and stuff, mm -hmm. but do they like rip out a whole shower? Like we're doing right that right now because of mold <laughs> and it's not an easy thing to do. I doubt they do. Probably use a lot of bleach and just really scrub. Yeah. So think about that for a second. Yuck. Like Whitney Houston died in a bathtub. Right. Is that tub still there? Of course. That's just crazy to me. I googled what happens to bathtubs 
or showers when people <laughs> oh die in them in God. hotels. And it just kept coming up like, fall in a hotel shower. Who pays? <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. And stuff like that. So, um, which made me remember, oh, yeah, that's not what I'm supposed to be researching. So <laughs> let's go back to the ghosts. So back to Hawaii and haunted hotels. So a woman in a red dress is seen wandering the halls and out on the beach. Now, done with that story. Now, there's another fancy hotel in Hawaii that I read was haunted. It, too, is in Waikiki. This hotel is referred to as the First Lady of Waikiki because it is Hawaii's oldest hotel. The name of the hotel is the Moana Surf Rider. It is a Western resort and spa, another absolutely gorgeous hotel. I believe it, yeah. On the beach. I miss the beach. <laughs> I love the beach. But another hotel that you would not expect to be haunted. This hotel opened in 1901 and was the first luxury property on the Waikiki Beach. Honestly, I think this hotel is even prettier than the other one we talked about. Kind of reminds me of like Charleston with the white pillars in the front mm -hmm. and rocking chairs on the porch. Oh. But this hotel is gorgeously decorated with a very beachy vibe with the white planks on the walls and the beach decor. It looks like a gorgeous house more than a hotel. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. The Moana Surfer Hotel had Hawaii's first ever electric elevator. Oh, goodness. And it's actually interesting because after the attack at Pearl Harbor, when most hotels were closed down and even rented out to those in the Navy in the area, the Moana stayed open as a guest hotel. I believe I read it was mostly servicemen that stayed there, but still, everyone needs a good escape sometimes. It's great that they offered that. Mm -hmm. Talking about death in a hotel, <laughs> Jane Stanford, the co-founder of Stanford University, died very mysteriously in this hotel. I guess she was murdered, and I read that, quote, it is one of the most legendary murder mysteries in America, unquote. So I guess you missed that boat, Mom. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to go back to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Jane Stanford's ghost is reportedly seen quite frequently at this hotel. She's seen wandering the halls of the second floor at night. Oh, my God. I forgot to mention. We are, like, really all over the place with this episode, but... A listener sent this in, and I read it in this article where I got the research, but Hawaiians call, like, when they get creeped out or whatever, they call it a, like, this story was called a chicken skin story. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. So, like, the chicken bumps, yes. like my four-year-old came up with. Aiden, of course. Yes. Yes. So, they call it chicken skin in Hawaii. Oh, my gosh. How cool is that? I know. Aiden is like the smartest kid ever. Okay. I mean, he just totally pulled that out of his rear end. But that is just, That's... I thought that was so cool. I totally forgot to mention that. Anyway, again. <laughs> Back to ghosts and hotels. Back to this story. Jane is seen walking the halls. Sorry, I already read that. But she is seen in a white, like, flowing nightgown with an old-fashioned key one that would have been used back when she was staying there she also tapped other guests on the shoulder and asked them directions to the front desk 
And then, as quickly as they notice her, she vanishes. Employees have even seen her just walking across the lobby and disappearing. Really? The hotel tells you all about her on their walking history tour of the grounds. She is known as their resident ghost. (laughs) The owner of the hotel even states that it's pretty common to see guests walking the halls with all their paranormal equipment (laughs) looking for spirits. So, yes, Hawaii, well, at least Waikiki, has its fair share of spirits, for sure. It definitely does. I've never been to Honolulu, Big Island, but I um, have been to Kauai, and I have been to Maui. And Maui is exceptional. But uh, we were at a restaurant dining with Brenda and Mord, and I asked the waiter, I'm kind of into paranormal, and I was reading that, you know, there's a ghost sighting. He goes, yes. There is. There's a woman in white. Nobody knows who she is. But, but of course she's in white. At least, what's her name? Changed it up. That's but why I think it's Pele. <laughs> There's a woman in white that walks this beach in front right here. Of course, everything was beachside. So, you, you know, you turn around and it's like, really? Right there? And he goes, I've seen her. <gasps> yep. He said, I've seen her. And he said, it's just late at night. And there's this woman in white just walking along the oh, beach. Oh, my gosh. So my question is, would I be intuitive enough to know that that was a ghost walk uh, down the hall? You said many people have seen this woman walk down the hall. How do, How do I you know, know it's a ghost? That it's and not just a, a person. Yeah, I mean, if she disappears all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. and that's what a lot of but, the stories that I read said that like a woman would come and tap them on the shoulder and be like, you know, ask them like, "Where's the lobby?" And then they turn and point and they'd look back and she's gone. Okay, that would kind. I mean, that would be obvious. I think that'd be pretty clear. It's a Extremely ghost. creepy, but obvious. But just to see somebody walk down the hall or walk through the lobby, maybe I mean, if she was in well, like Jane was seen dress. in her white nightgown if i saw a woman in a white nightgown walking, walking down through the, hall, the lobby I'd be like mm, <laughs> where are you <laughs> going <laughs> what's going on there how many mai tais did you have <laughs> he also told me uh legends about soldiers did you read any of those mm, no i got hooked once i saw this i was like i'm hooked on these fancy hotels that have ghosts that's pretty cool you that would is. that's the least expected right place you think about a spirit. Yeah, we'll have to, maybe you'll do the true crime and I'll do the uh, paranormal next time in Hawaii. But uh, yeah, it's like legends of soldiers way back when that were, you know, in conflict. But sometimes late at night, you can see like this band of soldiers walking across this field. I'll research it and get more into detail. But when he told me the story, it was like, okay, I'll take the lady in white on the beach anytime. Any day. That would be creepy as heck. Yeah. To see soldiers dressed in whatever, you know, way back when. I'm sure it wasn't grass skirts. (laughs) (laughs) But marching with their spears and stuff. That That would be so so creepy. Yeah. Hawaii has a lot of legends. A lot of legends. I found a ton of legend. So I thought I could mix a little bit in there with Pele. But so cool. It's a beautiful place. It is truly paradise. One day I'll go. Home. (sighs) Well, next week we will be covering a place that I actually have been to. North Carolina. North Carolina. 
North, you have. That was North Carolina for those that didn't understand our accents. You have true crime? Yep. All right. And Christmas will not be over with my story. Hint, hint. Oh, continuation of the holidays. Mm-hmm. It never ends. <laughs> All right. So... If you want to see pictures or anything like that from this episode, you can find us at on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a website with all of our resources from this episode, and that's killerhangover.wordpress.com. If you would like to listen to your episodes early and extra episodes, please join us on Patreon. We're going to be doing a giveaway again here soon. It was just too much fun the last time giving you guys goodies. We are really appreciative for all of those on Patreon, you can join too. And that is www.patreon.com backslash killer hangover podcast. Oh, come on. Five bucks a month for all of that. Yeah. Also, we'll have a patron of the month for all of our listeners episodes that are released every seventh of every month, which the next one is going to be released on my birthday. So like I said last week and probably like I'll say next week my birthday's January 7th send us your stories I can't wait to read them on the episode released on January 7th there you go another good one mom it was this Mai Tai is very strong Mai Tai was good Dana's story is not that well known so I'm happy I was able to share that I'm actually excited to go on and look more into that because that was very interesting thank you thank you cheers mama cheers Aloha and Malakalikimaka. Malakalikimaka. <laughs> I love you, kid.